The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, Episode 11, Beast in the Machine. Welcome back, Aeronaut, Mara greeted Ivan warmly, thankful that Tex didn't betray surprise. Are you going to tell us where you were? In a story, perhaps, Lucas replied as Ivan, adding a winking devil face. Fair enough, Mara agreed, although I wonder whether the Decameron would have selected your card if my hand hadn't slipped. For a supposed magic user, sometimes I'm all thumbs. Mara ended her reply with a happy face. For once, she was kind of sorry that Moot was the text-only environment. She was extraordinarily pleased with herself for not gagging on her last response, and was a little sorry that the others couldn't see her triumphant performance. We may never know, Jack said, but it's good to have our pilot back, especially since it looks like the honor is all yours next week. I'll be ready, Yvonne said. As Mara signed off, she wondered whether she should ask Moot if the program found Yvonne and brought him back. She suspected not, but wasn't sure why. In any case, he was back, the group was complete again, and she had a greater chance of getting home. Once she had gone, Jack asked, Where were you? Would it have killed you to write? We were so worried. Isabel was off her head. Granted, that's a fairly normal state for her, but I could barely get any work done for all the worried messages. Is there a hand-wringing emoji? If there wasn't before, there probably is now. Excuse me, <clears throat> I'm right here, only virtually invisible. Isabel interjected, sending a frantic little wave in brackets. And you mean you weren't worried, Jack? Don't be mad, please, guys. I'm sorry. I discovered something about the environment at the end of the story. It freaked me out a bit, and I signed off by mistake. I should have written, perhaps, but I decided to stay signed off for a little while to perpetuate the illusion that something had happened to me while I went poking around a bit. I know it was unfair to you, but I did it mainly for Mara's benefit. Baba Yaga likes loopholes, situations that she feels she can take advantage of in the future. I promise I won't do it again, Lucas wrote, placatingly. If I disappear in the future, I will get a message to you. I tried with the broken harp string. Jack, did you see anything at the end of your story? Yes, the harp string described itself into a golden, fiery feather. Excellent. That was me trying to tell you I was all right. Why a feather? asked Isabel. Because I like the air, and the idea of flying, and I want to be a pilot. I thought it was obvious. Sorry, Lucas replied. That's okay, Isabel said. In my experience, worry sharpens the mind in all the wrong places. In retrospect, your message was obvious. 
Our interpretation wasn't. We're just glad you're back and okay. Now tell us what you found out and we'll see if it agrees with what Jack discovered. As I was listening to your story, Isabel, I began picturing the features of the tawny, devilish cat on the smoky-colored one walking around the tree. Suddenly, I saw this cat described in this way, as if my imaginings made a change. And it was a change that the rest of you saw, right? Jack and Isabel agreed. Mara said she saw the cat change as well, Jack said. You were talking to her about this? Not exactly, but I'll explain later, Jack promised. Anyway, I signed on again, alone, and explored. I found the archives, where text descriptions that past groups have used in previous stories are stored for use by others with permission. It's a pretty big database, but you wouldn't find it unless you were looking for it. I was very impressed. There were a lot of things from stories I knew down there, all categorized and cross-referenced with elements from the same tales told differently in other cultures. In fact, I'm going to use a couple of things from the archives next week in my story. I found elements from an apparently Canadian version of Beauty and the Beast, where the imprisoned beast is actually the enchanted woman or princess. That may sound kind of crazy, but if you look at the way that lot play hockey, it actually makes sense. And to be truthful, putting beastliness and beauty together is actually kind of Russian, too, Lucas explained. It's probably Scottish as well, Isabel thought ruefully, remembering how Mara's off-handed nickname Dragon Lady left her feeling confused. At the time, she couldn't help but take it personally, but afterwards she wasn't sure whether she should consider it an insult or a badge of honor. And I'll tell you something else that's a bit weird, Lucas went on. The app is called Moot, as we know. You can query the app from anywhere within the story environment, and it will answer certain questions. But when I was down in the archives, I had a sense of another presence, and I imagined Moot as the archivist or keeper somehow, like it had some kind of consciousness and was interested in what I was looking at and the choices I made from all the old pieces of stories. Moot will keep a record, an automatic log of what you borrow and use, if that's what you mean, Jack said. No, it's like I felt Moot was engaged in a more active surveillance of what I was thinking about as I sorted through the different things in the archive, to see what I would do with them. Jack shared the bug report. Lucas swore. She's found something to get her spells into. We'll have to be extra careful. We can tell stories in text and in code, Jack said. She might be very deceptive and very practiced at leading people astray, but we have each other's backs. That's got to count for something. Unless she finds her way to whatever the app has for a soul, Isabel interjected. They resolved that, as with Mara's true identity, they would take care not to spell the name of the app directly anymore but to treat it as kind of a non-player character in a more traditional role-playing game, attributing a neutral or ambivalent personality to it for now. No need to get paranoid. They had all played games where the environment worked against the players. While that didn't seem to be going on here, Lucas hadn't been able to explain how the red cat she had transformed and leapt towards him out of his imaginings at the end of the story until his visit to the archives where the wicked feline was neatly stored and catalogued. He tried not to 
dwell on the idea that, of all the things in the archive, he may have been meant to find that particular entry. The following week, Lucas signed on, made his queries, and set up the environment, ensuring that his companions would log on to the magic carpet in mid-flight. Since that's where the story was when Lucas reappeared, in the character of Yvonne, in the guise of the golden boy. As they joined the story, each listener grasped the flying carpet firmly and made a suitably appreciative exclamation, as if they were sharing a fairground ride. Lucas smiled at this. He was the knave of diamonds tonight, a wise fool driving this little roller coaster of a tale. Welcome, friends. It is I, the wandering Ivan the Merchant's son, back from my mysterious sojourn. But while that's a story for another time, thank you for joining me on the wildly flying carpet. As you may remember, we left the soldier and the golden boy who emerged from the death of his faithful horse. He had just told the soldier that he's going to need his help if he wants to survive the adventure ahead. You're a lot of trouble, you know, said the golden boy. Why did you pick those flowers? I, I don't know, stammered the soldier. Honestly, it was just a whim. Here, you have them. He threw the bouquet at the golden lad, who turned gracefully and deliberately as the flowers came towards him in an unraveling bunch. They scattered behind the flying carpet on the wind and drifted down to the ground below. I meant for you to catch them so we could take them back to the part of the forest where I got them, wailed the soldier. The flowers are finding their proper place, the strange lad replied. Look. The soldier looked down and saw each of the flowers land on the ground with a golden or silver flash. As they landed, they grew, becoming pathways, arbors, ponds, ornate fences, or other elements in a palatial garden. And as they fell into place and established themselves, the forest around them cleared away. The largest and showiest bloom, a perfectly open orchid in shades of purple, fell on its side onto a flattened mound surrounded by a depression. A quantity of small blue and white flowers fell around it into the steep hollow, melting together as rain filling a moat or sea surrounding an island. The orchid became a grand palace, one of its petals extending over the water to the opposite side like a bridge. Land there, the lad demanded. Without waiting for a command from the soldier, the flying carpet landed of its own accord where the boy had indicated. The carpet rolled itself up into something that was the size of a sleeping roll. The lad took it and demanded the soldier's seven-league boots and invisibility cap as well. Such things won't help you here, he said. In case you haven't figured it out, this is a magical place, and such items will just be detected and either be taken away from you or used against you, he explained. The soldier would have liked to keep his treasures with him. Indeed, he would have liked to have gotten back on the flying carpet and flown away, but he sensed that he would not be able to escape from this place without the lad's help. Go on. Go inside. What kind of soldier are you? One that can trick devils but is afraid to explore a fine house when the door is wide open? The soldier walked forward and entered the palace. Before him he saw an imposing great hall with tall ceilings and a flagstone floor. It was almost completely empty except for a rocking chair that was rocking invitingly by itself. Sit in the place of honor, my friend, the lad said to the soldier. 
The soldier sat down nervously. No sooner had he done so than three giants rushed into the huge room. For some reason, they only had eyes for the soldier and they completely ignored the golden lad. Out of the corner of his eye, the soldier surmised that this could be because the young boy had put on his invisibility cap and was now nothing more than a dusty shimmer in a weak ray of sunlight. Oh, we have a guest. Do you like games? We love games, said one of the giants. We haven't had a visitor in so long and we would love to play. What we would love to play most is football. We don't have a ball, so you're it. And they kicked the soldier around the room like a football until he was black and blue and crying for mercy. When they'd had enough, they left the way they had come, laughing. <laughs> Help, the soldier moaned weakly. Suddenly, from another entrance, a great bear rushed into the room. It stood up on two legs and roared. The soldier fainted. The lad took off the cap of invisibility and materialized before the astonished bear. I know that you can help my friend, even though you are enchanted. Tend to his wounds and you will be well paid, he held out the cap. It flew to the bear's head, but instead of causing the beast to disappear, the animal transformed into a beautiful woman from the shoulders up, wearing a jeweled headdress like a princess. She indicated a pouch around her neck, containing two vials and a small pot of ointment. You will have to be my hands, she said. Put some of the ointment on his wounds. The lad did so just as they heard the giants returning. The partially transformed woman shambled away back through the door from which she had entered. The door closed and the soldier awoke. The lad put the seven-league boots on his feet and ran to the darkest corner of the room, hiding behind a large chest. Oh-ho, you're awake. Ready to play again? The giants swung ominous-looking clubs. Now we want to play baseball. Or maybe it's called Hurley. I forget. Anyway, we have our bats, but we don't have a ball for this game either, so you're it again. They took turns battering the poor soldier with their clubs until he was in far worse shape than before. When they had tired of this game, they left the hall in great high spirits. Soon after they had gone, the bear woman entered quickly, going straight to the side of the unconscious soldier, even as the young lad ran over in the twinkling of an eye. Here are fine boots for you when you have legs again. You see how fast they let one travel. The woman transformed to her waist, but still had the hind legs of a bear. This time, though, she had arms and hands, and she was able to attend to the soldier's wounds herself and bandage them. Almost as soon as she had finished, they heard the giants returning. The bear woman took the boots in her hand, ran through the door, and shut it quickly, while the lad flew partway up the great cold chimney on the flying carpet, hiding in the furthest recesses of the massive fireplace on the far wall. No more ball games, soldier. We've decided to finish you off humanely. We dug a great pit for you and lined it with sharp knives. The soldier began to weep piteously. Oh, don't go to pieces before we even throw you in. The giants grabbed the hapless soldier and threw him into the pit. Almost instantly, he was cut into a million pieces. When the giants called after him and he didn't respond, they disappeared. The bear woman ran to the pit and climbed down, heedless of the sharp blades. The lad was just ready to give her the flying carpet as the final payment, but she refused. If you give me another gift freely out of your concern for this man, I will fully transform. However, until I have healed the soldier, remaining partially a bear gives me strength and protection against these blades. 
She took the two vials from the pouch around her neck, sprinkling the remains of the soldier with one. The pieces knit together so that the soldier was a whole corpse, though badly injured. Help me bring him up, she said to the lad. Together they brought the soldier's body out of the pit, and the boy presented the flying carpet to the woman. She completed her transformation, donned the boots, which fitted perfectly, and were embroidered for her with jewels fit for a princess. Then she anointed the soldier with the contents of the second vial. He healed before their eyes and woke as if nothing had ever happened. Just at that moment, an ancient fairy appeared before them. Suddenly, the eyes of the golden lad as the returned character of Yvonne grew wide with horror. Moot described the fairy. The creature appearing before you has waist-length greenish-blue hair, long fingers, gracefully long bare feet, and luminous, bewitching eyes. Her clothes are the color of foam on the sea, and around her feet there is a puddle of water. That's not what I said. She's not part of my story. I said she was an ancient fairy of the air or the forest. That thing, that's a Rasalka. They drown people, Lucas said. Problem? Mara asked. Activate the Decameron. If it chooses Isabel or me, we can change the story and get you out of there, Jack instructed in the private channel. The Decameron shuffled, Queen of Hearts. My turn next, Jack said, cracking his neck from side to side as he typed, as if preparing for a fight or a competition. If everyone is up for it, shall we just carry on? The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.